I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 12 this evening. We're going through the Gospel of John. We've made, it our, uh, made our way up to the 12th chapter. The 12th chapter is kind of a transition uh, point. Uh, the A um, uh, couple of chapters ago, at the end of the 10th chapter, really, Jesus uh, made an end of His public ministry uh, in that uh, He had declared everything that He needed to say to the Jews. He uh, plainly showed them that He was the Christ when they challenged him on that. And from that point on, Jesus uh, left Judea and went into uh, the country roundabout, or it actually it says beyond Jordan, into the Galilee territory and uh, into the Gentile territory, really. And uh, he comes back, raises Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. Then chapter 12 tells us uh, about um, uh, the beginning point for Jesus um, well, the last half of his ministry, which was a private ministry, which was to the uh, to the apostles, to the twelve, and those disciples that were following him, we'll start in verse one of chapter twelve. Then Jesus, six days before the six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. Then they made him a supper. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Now, it's, uh, I think it is, uh, would serve us well to make mention of the fact that both Matthew and Mark, Matthew 26, Mark 14, tells us this story. And, uh, and there are some, uh, what some people consider to be discrepancies in the stories. Now, remember that John is writing this in uh, 90 to 95 A.D., which is uh, some 60 years after Jesus has uh, been crucified and raised from the dead. John well knows what the Matthew's account is. He well knows Ma- uh, Mark's account. He knows the things that Luke told about it, and, and there are uh, things relative to this story that Luke gives us account of as well later on. And, uh, and John is not uh, trying to correct the record. He knows that everybody knows the things that the other gospel writers wrote about as they were inspired by the Holy Ghost. And so he fills in the blanks. And so for that reason, he doesn't give us some of the same details or the same information that the others do. For example, both Matthew and Mark said that uh, this event where Mary, uh, well, neither Matthew or Mark identify that it is Mary, but they talk about a woman who brought the ointment and and anointed him. Uh, They say that it happened two days before the feast of the Passover. Well, some people look at that and say that was a discrepancy. Both Matthew and Mark make mention of the fact that it was in the house of one Simon the leper. So they say, well, see, that's a discrepancy because here's, uh, here's John telling us that it happened in Martha's house, Martha and Lazarus' house. But I want you to notice something. As I said, John's not trying to correct the record. He's just trying to fill in the blanks on things that, um, that, that they don't know, perhaps the readers don't know, and uh, and build on the things that they do know. So what he's saying is not that this event happened six days before the Passover, which would be a contradiction. He's just saying Jesus spent the last six days before the Passover in Bethany. So let's read it again with that in mind, and we'll cover some of the details <clears throat> because this is one of the things that people always point to, or some people at least, <clears throat> excuse me, point to and say, well, see, the Bible's full of contradictions. You can't tell, you can't take it literally and and so forth, but you can't. So it says in verse one again, then Jesus six days before the Passover came to Bethany. That's all it says. It says he came to Bethany six days before the Passover. He stayed there until he wound up going to the feast of the Passover. So he spent the last six days before that point in time, before going to the feast of the Passover in Bethany. That's all John's saying. Then it goes further and it says, identifies Bethany as the place where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom was raised from the dead. There they, notice the word they, there they made him a supper. Well, who's they? Again, as I said, Matthew and Mark make mention of the fact that Simon the leper's house was the place where this took place according to their gospel account. Now, let's talk about Simon for a minute. <clears throat> Simon's a leper, or Simon is identified as Simon the leper. What does that mean? Does that mean Simon has leprosy? If so, what's he mingling with other people for? That's contrary to the law of Moses. That wouldn't make sense, would it? Well, why is he identified as Simon the leper? Well, let me give you a a clue. One of the things that you may or may not know, Matthew is still called the tax gatherer after he leaves his profession and starts following Jesus. 
So sometimes people in the Gospels are identified by what they used to be. Why would Jesus be in the house of a leper without ministering healing to them? Or maybe a better question to ask would be, why would a leper want Jesus to come to the house if they didn't believe in, in his ability to heal? What I'm getting at, folks, is that Simon is most probably somebody that was healed of leprosy in Jesus' ministry. And that would set the stage for why they are having this worshiping supper. They're so grateful for the things that have been done. This is at the house of Simon the leper. That's why it says there they made him a supper. Well, who's they? Well, it says Martha served. It would be contrary to the laws of hospitality for Martha to serve in somebody's house unless... There is some connection there between the two families or the two households. You remember, for example, at the wedding in Cana, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. What is Mary, the mother of Jesus, coming to Jesus for and saying, we're out of wine? What does she have to do with that? All Bible scholars agree that the only reason that that would, take, would have taken place is if Mary is uh, related in some way to this family that's holding the wedding feast. And as a result, she has some responsibility in serving. The same case is most probably true in this situation. Simon's family is most probably related in some way, maybe distantly, but related in some way to Mary, Martha, her sister, and Lazarus, their brother. That's why it says, therefore, um, or there they made him a supper and Martha served. Martha wouldn't be serving unless she had some place of responsibility because she would be taking the place of the hospitality, the rule and the law of hospitality as, as prescribed by the law of Moses to be serving in somebody else's place. That would be the greatest dishonor you could do to someone. And in the fact that it goes further and says, Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with them. That would be crazy for him to say that Lazarus was sitting at the table in his own house. The fact that Lazarus is mentioned as being there tells us that it was not Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' home. So it says, during this case, we know from the other accounts that this was two days before the Passover. It says, then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, Luke said, I mean, uh, what's his name? Mark says that she anointed his head. Well, again, is John contradicting? Is he trying to straighten out the record because somebody that says they were inspired by the Holy Ghost got it wrong? No. John, however, focuses on that which shows her worshipful attitude. She did anoint his head, but she anointed his feet too, and she wiped wiped his feet with her hair. Now, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians, Paul said that the glory of the woman is her hair. So she wiped his feet with that which represented the most precious part of her or the most precious aspect of her as a woman. Now, I'm not trying to get into preaching clotheslines or anything like that, like the old-time Pentecostals and holiness people did. So I'm not wanting to get into the, the argument about long hair, short hair, and that kind of thing. But the Bible identifies the hair is the glory of the woman. That has significance as far as God is concerned in this, uh, in this story. So it said it wiped his feet. She, she wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Notice it doesn't say the room. It says the house. Now, what's the significance of that? Because everybody's going to know of what happened. Now, both, Ma- both Matthew and Mark identify that Jesus said that this will be done as a memorial to her, yet her name is not mentioned in either account. John doesn't tell us that Jesus said anything, but he tells us who she was. So he fulfills the memorial to, to Mary, doesn't he? Verse 4, Then said one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? Now, Matthew's account says that the disciples said it. John tells us where it started. There may have been other disciples that picked it up, but John tells us where this whole idea started and where the, where the, the, uh, the group was incited, at least the source of the incitement of whatever the others picked up. Judas said, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he, because he cared for the poor. Not everybody who talks about giving to the poor cares about them. Folks, you need to keep that in mind. Because a lot of people are pulled in by people talking about giving to the poor nowadays, and they, couldn't care one, they don't care one whit about the poor. They're trying to do it for themselves, just like Judas. Judas said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare 
what was put therein. Now, it's interesting that, uh, that John gives us some information that none of the others do. These are the first recorded words of Judas in the gospel, and it had to do with his stealing. None of the other gospel accounts tell us anything start to finish about what Judas said until he talks to the chief priest and cuts the deal to, to betray Jesus. This, however, is John's account of the first words that Judas spoke as recorded in the gospels to condemn the woman for doing something. You know, there's always somebody that, uh, that wants to condemn other people for the way they worship God. Now, let me ask you a question. Notice he said, uh, uh, why was not this ointment sold for uh, 300 pence and given to the poor? He's talking about wastefulness, isn't he? Isn't that what he's trying to get to? Now, 300 pence is about one year's wages. So whatever you make per year, just figure that that's what this ointment cost. If you make $50,000 a year, it was a $50,000 gift. If you make $500,000 a year, it was a half a million dollar gift. So whatever it is for your annual salary, that's what she gave. So you can see that this was something that was very precious. Let me ask you a question. How much is too much to give to God? If this was only 75 pence worth, would Judas have been happy with that? What about 30? What about 10? How much is too much? And folks, there are always people, have been from the beginning, always will be. There are always people that are going to try to condemn others for the way that they worship God, for the sacrifice that they make. What sacrifice, where does sacrifice ever become wasteful? Where does love for God ever become wasteful? How much is too much? Mary's willing to give everything she has. And this represents the most precious thing she has. And she's been saving up for a long time. She's had this and she's held it. Jesus says something about that. Just because somebody else may not be as committed as you and therefore condemns you or criticizes you doesn't mean you're wrong. Notice what Jesus does. Jesus speaks up and says, leave her alone. I love the fact that Jesus defended her. Leave her alone. Against the day of my burying has she kept this. In other words, he's saying she's been keeping this, she's been saving this to anoint me for burial. You know, it's interesting because after Jesus is, uh, is buried and put in the tomb, it says on the third day there were a lot of women that came by and wanted to anoint his body for burial. She, however, because she takes a position earlier in Jesus' ministry at sitting at his feet, she's got a special relationship with him. She knows something about what is to come. The Holy Ghost has led her to know something about what is to come. Now, we don't know to what degree she knows, but she knows that this is an important thing for her to do. Jesus said it was against the day of his burying. Then he says something to, to Judas concerning his fake concern for the poor. He says, for the poor always you have with you. But me, you have not always. Folks, money doesn't fix poor people. Hello? Money doesn't fix poor people. You know why people are poor? It's not because they don't have money. Now, the government seems to, and politics seems to put this idea out that if we could just get enough money to the poor, they wouldn't be poor anymore. Well, sure they would. People are poor because they don't know how to handle money. And you can give them all the money in the world and it won't teach them how to handle it. They'd just waste all the money in the world. So Jesus said, you're never going to deal with the poor problem by deal by just giving them money. That's always going to be present. But he's not always going to be here. Much people of the Jews, therefore, knew that he was there in Bethany. And they came not for Jesus' sake only. I love this. Notice it says they didn't come just because of Jesus. Now, he's the miracle worker. The news has gotten out that he raised Lazarus from the dead. But they didn't come just to see Jesus. They also came that they might see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. They want to see the guy that came back. But the chief priests, notice this, but the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death because that by reason of him, many of the Jews, that would mean the religious leaders, went away and believed on Jesus. Now, Acts chapter 5, verse 17 tells us that the chief priests, uh, the high priest and the chief priests were predominantly Sadducees in the early days of the church. Now, this is just a couple of months before that event takes place in Acts chapter 5, maybe three months. We don't know for sure, but we can estimate. And so it's, it's certainly less than six months. 
So we would assume, therefore, that there hasn't been a change of the chief priest in that uh, in that short period of time. What does that mean? Here's what it means. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Their doctrine is there is no resurrection of the dead. So Lazarus is a real problem for them. He is a serious problem for them. Because being raised from or resurrected from the dead, he is the living proof that their doctrine is hooey. And that's why they wanted to kill Lazarus. Notice it's not just about Jesus anymore. It's about Lazarus now too. On the next day, that would mean the day before the Passover. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was come to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat thereon as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, thy king cometh sitting on an ass's colt. Now, Luke tells us all about how he found the the donkey. He told the disciples, go to a certain place, and there'll be a a foal colt tied up there. And if the owner asks you what you're doing, tell them the master has need of it. So Luke fills in the blanks on all the details of how this occurs. John doesn't take the time to reiterate the story. He knows everybody that reads his gospel has access to the other gospels too. So he just says, and then when Jesus got the, the, the little colt. So you can see the difference in the way they operate. But now, folks, before we go any further, I want you to notice the contrast here that's uh, identified in the first uh, 11 verses of this chapter. You've got a group of people having a dinner with Jesus in the last week of his life that love him with all of their hearts. They're willing to do anything and everything, and rightly so, because they've been healed and even raised from the dead. They have seen the greatest miracles that you could possibly imagine. If you could script the miracles that you'd want to see, you wouldn't be any better off than what they've had. But at the same time, you've got people that adore Jesus and love him with all their heart. You've got people that in spite of the very same miracles, the very same opportunity to believe, their hatred is inflamed and increased so that no matter what, they're willing to kill him and anybody else that stands in their way. And that's always going to be the case too, folks. Even as in the last days when the Holy Ghost begins to move and pour out His Spirit in, uh, in great power, as the Bible talks about, the latter rain, you're gonna, everybody's not going to jump on board. It's going to create a persecution mentality. It's going to create a hatred attitude toward the church because they always go hand in hand. They did with Jesus. They will with us. Verse 16, it says, these things understood not his disciples at the first. You remember Luke's account says that the, the Pharisees or the, uh, the Jews rather tried to tell Jesus, keep your disciples quiet. Everybody's crying Hosanna. Keep your disciples quiet. And Jesus says, if they didn't speak out, then the rocks would cry out. You remember the story. John doesn't go into that. He's here to identify the things that people don't know about the story or, or you know, cover the, the high spots and let the others, the other uh, gospel account The details in the other gospel accounts stand. These things understood not his disciples. Notice how John's pointing back to what he understands now 60 years later. These things understood not his disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, raised from the dead. Then remembered they that these things were written of him and that they had done these things unto him. The people, therefore, that was with him when he called Lazarus out of the grave and raised him from the dead, bear record. Folks, this has gotten everywhere. The news of this has traveled all over the world, that part of the world at least. For this cause, the people also met him, for that they had heard that he had done this miracle. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, Perceive ye how you prevail nothing? Behold, the world has gone after him. In other words, they're saying nothing we've tried is working. Everybody still believes on this guy. Everything we've tried to do, all the times we've tried to kill him and he escaped out of our hand, all the times we've tried to raise accusations against him, the rumors that we spread against him, the lies that we told, none of that's working. Everybody still believes on him. And let me tell you something else about the things of God. You remember in, uh, uh, in the book of Exodus when it talks about Moses going before Pharaoh? Moses talking to the Lord in the burning, burning bush and, and he, he throws his rod down. It becomes a serpent and that type of thing. And he said, this is one of the signs that you'll use before Pharaoh. When he went in Pharaoh's court, Pharaoh asked him, who sent you? And Moses is telling him, and, uh, you know, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, that doesn't mean anything to Pharaoh. He doesn't know who any of those guys are. Doesn't care. And so Moses throws down his rod. You remember what happened after that? 
It says that Pharaoh's magicians threw down their rods too and they turned into snakes. Now, folks, I don't know how that happened. I, I wish I had an explanation for that. I didn't know the devil could turn, could turn sticks into snakes. That really doesn't fit some of my doctrine, if you know what I mean. But the Bible says it happened, so it happened. I don't have an explanation, but I believe that it happened because the Bible said so. But then what happened? It says Moses' snake swallowed up theirs. And then he took it and became a rod again. The things of God are always going to be counterfeited. They're always going to be opposed. They're always going to be, um, it's always going to raise persecution against those who are operating on behalf of God. It's always going to have these things that, uh, that try to muddy the water. If the devil can't get you to not believe what's happening, he'll try to do something that's spectacular to get you distracted. But the things of God, the power of God always swallows up the things of the devil. The real always swallows up the false. So don't get disturbed about other things. Don't let other things bother you. Don't, don't let uh, people that stand against it get you uptight because what's real and what's true always shows forth. So this is the Pharisees' problem. They're saying everything we've tried to do doesn't work. I just, uh, maybe it's just me, but I just cannot help but believe that God just gets a thrill out of, out of, out of turning the devil's world upside down. I mean, here the devil tries to do everything that he can to make certain things happen and to keep other things happening, and God just messes things up everywhere he turns around. And that's, in my opinion, that's what I read about the book of Revelation and during the seven-year period of tribulation. I grew up thinking that the tribulation was the devil at work. Oh, my goodness. All these things that the devil's going to do. I've come to realize that the, it's the seven years of tribulation is the devil trying to do something and God messing it up every time he turns around. Showing how inept and foolish the devil really is, along with those that follow him. That's what's happening here. You see a picture of that in Jesus. So it says, the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, perceive ye how you prevail nothing. Nothing's working. Behold, the whole world has gone after him. And there were certain Greeks. Here's John telling us how real that is. There were certain Greeks or Gentiles among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came, therefore, to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip went together to tell Jesus. Even the Gentiles have heard about these miracles that Jesus has done, has done, and now they want to see him for themselves. Now, the Gentiles had no place in the Feast of the Passover. They couldn't go into the temple, couldn't offer sacrifices like everybody else, they're just there on the outskirts. They're only there for one reason. They're not there to offer sacrifices. They're not there for any other reason. Otherwise, it wouldn't call them Greeks. It would said something about them being Jewish proselytes. But the reason that they're there is because they've traveled a long way because they just want to see Jesus. They've heard about him, and they just want to see him. Well, isn't one of the prophecies that the Gentiles would trust on his name? That began even before Jesus went to the cross. But Jesus know that knows that it's not time for it in that manner. So he answers in verse 23 and says, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. John recognizes the significance of this. Whether they did at the time or not, uh, that's iffy. Probably they didn't. But again, John is looking back 60 years, having the knowledge of who they are in Christ and the things that he said, and, and uh, having had the, the, uh, the benefit of the Holy Ghost bringing things to his remembrance that he probably let slip at the time. Up until this point in time, Jesus has said continually, my hour has not yet come. That's the first thing that he said to his mother at the wedding in Cana where she said, we're out of wine, you got to do something. He said, woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. Now he says for the first time, my hour is here. Now he was telling them, telling his disciples, this is it, guys. And he has done so plainly before then. The Bible says in uh, Matthew's account that after the mountain of transfiguration experience, he began to plainly teach them, plainly tell them, clearly, not in riddles, not in parables or anything else, but began to plainly tell them, I'm going to Jerusalem, they're going to kill me, and I'm going to be raised from the dead. That's why he was so uh, upset with them and upbraided them for their hardness of heart when he was raised from the dead, and they didn't believe that it happened because he had been telling them all along. Well, all along, a short period of time, but still he had made it clear to them, here's what's going to happen. And they still didn't believe it. So they must have been hearing some of these things and letting it just go right over their heads. So Jesus now identifies, my hour has come, that the Son of, that the Son of Man might be glorified. 
Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. He that loves his life shall lose it. And he that hates his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, not where I'm going, but where I am, there shall he, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I into this hour. Now, I want to point something out to you folks that has nothing to do with the Gentiles coming to see him. Jesus doesn't even address the, the thing that Philip and Andrew come to him with. They said, hey, there, there are Greeks that are here. They want to see you. He didn't even respond. Instead, he talks about what's important, and that is he's laying down his life. He tells it to the disciples clearly, plainly, and shows it to them. Then he says in verse 20, 28, Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people, therefore, that stood by. So there's people around there. This is not some private meeting. This is something that happens with a lot of people around. The people, therefore, that heard by or that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. In other words, it was indistinct to some. And then others said an angel spoke to him. But Jesus clears it up. Jesus answered and said, this voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. So he tells them. It was a voice. It must have been something to sound like thunder or be mistaken by some by, uh, as thunder, wouldn't it? This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. I think what Jesus is saying, certainly the voice came because of him. I think what he's saying is this voice was not for me, but it was for you. Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the prince of this world now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Now we can look back just as John is looking back 60 years later after the fact, after this, this uh, event occurred. John's looking at these things and he has a much greater understanding than I'm sure he did at the time that it was spoken. If just maturity, if nothing else, would probably help him understand things. But he's got a lot of hindsight to work with. He's got a little greater knowledge of God and what it means to be saved, what it means for Jesus to have been lifted up, crucified, and, and uh, raised up from the dead. He understands those things a lot more now it, it, than before, if he even understood it at all. Right? So when Jesus says these things and John looks back to these things, and it seems to me at least, he's showing the lack of understanding of the disciples at the time But now we know what it means. So what does Jesus say? Jesus says, he's talking about his his death again. But for the first time, he identifies that his death has a purpose where the prince of this world is concerned. He said, now is the judgment of this world. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean the judgment of people? People get hung up on the word judgment. What does it mean? Well, Pastor Mike, what about the judgment of God? Well, if you're in Christ, there is no judgment of God. Your works will be judged. All, everybody's works will be judged. But the judgment of God in that context is only for those who have rejected Jesus. And that judgment's set. It's not like God looks at him and says, well, the things are really going to be bad for you, but, okay, you just made a mistake and you didn't understand. No, the judgment of God's already set. That's eternal punishment in hell. Right? I mean, heaven or hell, that's the only choice. So where he says, now is the judgment of this world, what he's saying is the judgment upon sin. Because the people aren't being judged, but sin is being judged. And in context, in that context, in relation to that, he says, now is the prince of this world cast out. He's talking about freedom from the power of spiritual death. I wonder if they knew that. I wonder if they understood that. I don't think there's much chance of it at all. But John does looking back, doesn't he? That's It seems to me, at least, that's why John tells this in a story form. Rather than trying to, to, to get all the nitpicky details and, and collect what Matthew said and collect what Mark said and collect what Luke said and put together this giant book that kind of covers the whole thing, he's just telling the story of the Son of God. You can find the details in some of the other accounts. He's pointing out this was the Son of God. And who but the Son of God could cast the prince of this world out? 
And if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. But the people answered him. The fact that it says the people rather than the disciples tells me that it was a bigger crowd than just the ones that followed him. The people therefore answered him and said, We have heard out of the law that Christ abides forever. And how sayest thou the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? In other words, they're saying, wait a minute, you're talking about the Son of Man saying the Son of Man must die. But Christ can't die. So you can't be talking about yourself. Who is the Son of Man? Well, that shows what their understanding was, doesn't it? They didn't have any of it figured out at all. Everybody's in the dark on this, but Jesus knows. Then Jesus said unto them, yet a little while, while the, uh, let, yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may be the children of the light. These things spoke Jesus and departed and did hide himself from them. I want you to notice something about this, folks. He's talking about walking in the light. Um, I think in the simplest, simplest form we could interpret this is him saying, believe what I say, don't let your questions talk you out of the truth. Because you're never going to understand everything. Nobody ever is. Even when you get to heaven, I'm sure there'll be a lot of times for us to ask questions and, and understand things that, that we don't know by the time we get there. And a lot of people allow the questions that are in their mind, the, the, the issues that they have doubt over or things that they doubt, to, to hinder them from accepting the truth. When in the final analysis, some things you just have to put on the shelf and say, well, I may not have this all figured out, but God said this, so this is the way it is. I, I gave you an example just a little bit earlier. I don't know how the devil turned a, sn- a stick into a snake, but the Bible says so. So if I still care when I get to heaven, I guess I can ask there. I doubt if I will. But there are a lot of things that we're not going to have figured out, none of them. And so in the simplest form, I think Jesus is saying, don't let the things that you can't figure out keep you from the truth. But notice specifically what he said about walking in the light. Notice he said, walk while you have the light, lest darkness come upon you. In other words, if you don't keep walking in the light, if you don't keep growing in the knowledge of God, darkness will catch you. May I say it this way? The only way for you to stay in the light is to keep walking in the light. Just because you had the light on one subject or in one area, if you quit growing, darkness will overtake you. You won't stay in that light. Do you see what he's saying? Walk in the light while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. If it was true then, it's true now. Verse 37, But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. If there is uh, a greater indictment in any of the Gospels, the four Gospels, than this, I don't know what it is. What excuse could any of them have? But though he had done so many miracles before them, certainly not the least of them is raising Lazarus from the dead. And everybody's coming to see Lazarus for themselves. They heard the stories. They heard what happened. But they want to see Lazarus for themselves, and they did. Yet they still wouldn't believe. What does it take for somebody in that condition? Folks, I would submit to you that there's nothing that can be done for somebody that has that hardness of heart. There's nothing that can be done for somebody that decides no matter what I see, I'm still not going to believe. And that's what they've done. That may not be what they actively determined to do, but that's exactly the action that they took. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. That the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and be converted and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now, a lot of times folks will take these and most commentators will take these verses of Scripture and say, well, see, it was the sovereignty of God at work. God wouldn't let them believe. But, folks, I've got to tell you, if they failed to believe because God refused to allow them to, then God's responsible for their eternal damnation. 
Well, if that's the case, then we've got some pages we're going to have to tear out of the Bible. Because Jesus said, the thief comes not but for to kill, steal, and destroy, but I'm come that you might have life and you might have it more abundantly. Well, you're going to have to put God in the thief category because he's destroying people's eternal lives. That can't be the way that it is. So where it says he hardened their heart or blinded their eyes, what it's simply saying is he allowed them, just like Pharaoh in the Old Testament, chose to harden his own heart and refused to believe, even though he saw the miracles and the signs that were being done through Moses. He refused to believe on his own, and God allowed him to make that choice. That's the same thing happening here. And that's why I think verse 37 is so important. Again, let me read verse 37. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. Now, if John's telling us the story and it's all about the sovereignty of God, picking and choosing who believes and who doesn't believe, then why didn't John tell us at that point and God wouldn't let them believe even though they wanted to? See, that's the implication behind the sovereignty of God thing. Those poor people. The poor ones that just didn't win God's lottery. Those poor people, they're just like you and me. We're just lucky that God chose us. But God could have chosen them and decided, no, it's hell for you. See, that's the way the the devil will will turn and twist this idea of the sovereignty of God around. But the sovereignty of God is very simple. God is sovereign, and he has established certain things that man lives by. Number one, man's will makes the decision for his eternal home. Jesus said, whosoever will, let him come unto me. Not whosoever God chooses, let him come. He said, whosoever will, let him come. Man's the one that has authority. It's man's will. God said, even in the Old Testament, he said, according to the words that you speak into my ears, that's what I'll do. Well, isn't salvation all about believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth that Jesus is your Savior? So according to your words, God deals with you, not according to what God wants you to say. Folks, if God could, could control man's mouth, things would be a lot different here on the earth. You know that's true. You can't tell me that God wants people to talk the way that they talk now. Well, why do they? Because it's their choice. Just like everything else in life is a choice. Verse 41 again, these things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. Verse 42, nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him. Now, wait a minute. Hold on a second. I thought they couldn't believe because their hearts were blinded and their eyes were hard, or hearts were hardened, eyes were blinded and so forth. I thought the sovereignty of God stuff kept them out of, out of believing. Notice it says, even though, even though Isaiah prophesied about blinded eyes and hardened hearts, many of the Jews, that means the religious leaders, Many of the Jews and among the chief rulers also believed on him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Now, folks, there can't be any sadder scripture in the Bible than that. They believed, but they refused to come out with what they believed because they were afraid they would lose their place, even though a lot of them had, even though many of the Jews had already turned away and said, we believe in Jesus because of Lazarus being raised from the dead. We just read that a few verses before. Many of the Jews are willing to come out and say, hey, this guy's the real deal. You can't raise the dead unless you're the real deal. Now you got people that are saying, wow, he is the real deal, but we can't say anything about it. Because if we say something about it, we'll lose our place. And man, we like our place. Remember what Jesus said? He said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my father. But if you're ashamed of me and deny me before men, I'll deny you before my father. Did these guys get saved? Not based on what it says here. Now, if they had a change of heart somewhere down the road after Jesus was raised from the dead and, and turned things around... That would be great. But if this is all the information we have about them, they went to hell knowing Jesus was the Messiah. Because they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Jesus cried and said, He that believeth on me believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. Now, I think this is connected back to verses 42 and 43. 
I believe Jesus knew that in this crowd there were many of the chief rulers, many of the, the leaders of the Jews who did believe in him. And he knew they believed in him, but they were afraid, ashamed, or whatever, to confess him. They didn't want to lose their place. They wanted the, the accolades of men. They wanted whatever their the perks that came with their positions and so forth, rather than to obey the things of God. I believe that he must have known that. Else, why is he saying these words? He that believeth on me, believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. It's, in other words, Jesus is saying it's really not about me. It's about whether or not you believe in the God that you say you serve. And he that seeth me, seeth him that sent me. I am come a light into the world, that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. And if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. Wait a minute. Didn't he say over in uh, verse 31 that the judgment now is the judgment of this world? But yet he's saying, I didn't come to judge the world. What's he talking about? The judgment of the world in verse 31 is the judgment upon spiritual death. He came to deal with the issue of spiritual death once and for all. He didn't come to judge mankind. He didn't come to judge people. You know, in Romans chapter uh, 8, it says Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. You know what that means? That means for the first time ever when Jesus went to the cross, he was able to separate man from his sin. Prior to that point in time, if sin was judged, if the penalty of sin was required, man had to die. And many people did. Many people in the Old Testament died because the judgment of God came to protect Israel in some cases, to protect the man of God in other cases. And judgment fell upon them. The judgment of God fell upon their sin. Not upon them, but upon the sin that they had attached themselves to. And there was no separation. You couldn't divide between man and his sin. But Jesus did once and for all. That's why it's so important for us to understand that he was made to be sin. We like to think in a religious context, or many people do at least, that Jesus just became our substitute. Well, what does that mean? If you don't realize that substitute was the man who died because of spiritual death, then substitute doesn't mean anything. It just means, well, he, he paid the price for us. But you won't ever understand righteousness unless you understand that paying the price means he became death. One of my favorite scriptures is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 where it says, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You can only be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus to the degree that you understand that he was made to be sin. You can't believe that you're truly righteous, truly made righteous, righteous in nature, and think that God just kind of laid sin over on Jesus in some form that wasn't the real thing. In the same way that Jesus was made sin is the only way that you can be made righteous. Because he was your substitute. He paid the price. That means he died the death that you would have died without him. What death is that? Is that a death where God would have just said, well, we know you messed up. We know you did wrong. We know that you, you didn't keep the law. So we'll just act like it's sin. But I'll really save you a place over here. That's what so many people seem to think about Jesus in his death. Jesus was literally made sin. That's why the Bible says Jesus was the first begotten from the dead. It can't be the first begotten from physical death because Lazarus beat him. There are others in the Old Testament that were raised from the dead. First begotten from the dead has to mean first begotten from spiritual death. Well, in order to be the first begotten or first born from spiritual death, you've got to be spiritually dead. How could Jesus be spiritually dead? There's only one way, and that was for God to make him sin, singular, which means, which always in Scripture means spiritual death. Sin's plural means the actions of the flesh. Sin, singular, always means spiritual death. So he said, if any man hear me, hear my words and believe not, I judge him not, verse 47. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejects me and receives not my word has one that judges him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. In other words, it all comes down to the word. There's only one question that will be asked of anyone standing before the throne of God. Did you keep my word? 
No point in asking, did you love me? Because Jesus said in John 15, he tells his disciples later on in this week, he tells his disciples, he that loveth me, loveth me is the one that keeps my words. So it always comes back to the same thing. Did you keep my word? Folks, you can't overemphasize the importance of the word of God. It's the only thing that will live forever. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the word will live forever. He that rejects me and receives not my words has one that judges him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me, he gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father has said unto me, so I speak. He concludes his discourse with the rulers, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Jews, and whatever other people have heard about the miracle of of, uh, Lazarus' resurrection by saying, it's the word that matters. It's the word that matters. It's only the word. Now, what's the context that he says that? He knows he's going to the cross. He knows he's going to become sin. He knows he's going to become spiritual death. He knows he's going to pay the price for everybody's sin, not just an individual sin, but for everybody's sin. How would you handle that? I don't even pay the price for my own sin. How would you handle knowing that you're going to have to pay the price for everybody's sin, the ultimate price for everyone's sin? Look at the dignity that Jesus handles it with. You can see him start to be troubled already. He knows we're just a few days away from this thing. This is why I came. He's going to pray in just a couple of days. Father, if there's any way for this to be done without going through the cross, let this cup pass from me. But if this is the only way, I'm willing to finish it. So you can see him starting to be troubled even now. Even as he enters into Jerusalem. Even as everybody's crying, Hosanna. To the king. Waving palm branches and stuff like that. Hosanna means save now. He's recognized as the king of Israel. He's recognized as the king of the Jews entering triumphantly into Israel. Not because he's conquered enemies. But because he's conquered sickness and death. And he's even in many cases provided forgiveness of sins. That's what made him the king of the Jews. Interestingly enough, every time else in the every other time in the Gospels where they tried to make him a king, he went away from them. Now he comes openly into Jerusalem, agreeing and admitting, I am the king. Not much of a king's welcome awaits him, huh? Looks good today, but give it a couple of days and see how things turn around. And so what does he leave us with? The importance of his word. The importance of his word. Folks, what place does the word hold in your life? I am. Um, I'm being greatly affected. By some old timers that I'm reading after. Guys like Wigglesworth and John Lake and some others. Because every one of them talks about a. Um, Well, they talk about a spiritual life that's foreign to us, that's foreign to the modern-day church. They talk about a largeness of spirit. And both of them came to, both of those two gentlemen, may be true for others as well, both of those two gentlemen came to a place where they prayed, God, enlarge me. Enlarge me. And it ended up in, it resulted in the same thing for both of them. It resulted in a greater understanding of who they are in Christ. It resulted in a greater understanding of the place that the word has to hold in our lives. Interesting that that's the very thing that Jesus is talking about. When he's talking about casting the prince of this world out. When he's talking about the judgment on spiritual death being made once and for all. When he's talking about not judging people. But rather being the judgment or the payment or the penalty for sin. He talks about his word. Wigglesworth used to say something regularly. He said, I'm a million times bigger on the inside than I am on the outside. He came to understand that through this enlargement of spirit. That's what God wants for us. 
And the word's the only thing that brings you to that place. A total and complete commitment to his word. Not obeying the word in some areas, but then hiding, uh, hiding and holding on to some areas of life for ourselves. Because the word will even judge us. The word will judge us in the areas that we don't yield to it. It's not God's judgment. It's our knowing from within, within our own hearts, our own spirits. What we're willing to give up and what we're, what we're not willing to give up. We think it's such a sacrifice to give up earthly things. If only we could see. Enlarge us, Lord. Enlarge our hearts. Think of the, the, the largeness of spirit. I don't even know if that's a, a, a good term to use. But think of the largeness of spirit of Jesus. He knows what he's there for. He knows the pain, the suffering that's, that's associated with it. He knows the separation from his father, which in my opinion means more to him than anything. I think that's really what he's pulling back from in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's sweating drops of blood. I think he's drawing back from being separated from his father because he had that largeness of spirit and nothing could be more devastating. Nothing could be more terrifying than that to someone that's in his place. What place does the word hold in your life? Is it just a a means of blessing? Healing, prosperity, good things that you want? Or is it the foundation for your life? Let's make it the foundation of our lives. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Enlarge us, Lord. Give us that largeness of spirit. Make us a million times bigger on the inside than we are on the outside. Cause the power of your word to be real to us so that nothing else in this life matters. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.